there are two questions that everyone you know is asking, whether they realize it or not. The first is this, does my life have any meaning? Is there some greater purpose to it? The second question is, what do I do about my impending death? Say, Pastor, I uh, don't find myself asking those questions very on. Those are actually rather morbid. I thought I was coming to church to sing and worship, hear an encouraging message, eat some food, go on the bounce house, maybe not in that order, uh, just have a good time. And here we are talking about death. I think if I could put forward a theory, I think the reason that many of us don't think on these questions is because we keep ourselves profoundly distracted in the 21st century. Because it is in moments of solitude and in quiet that our minds cannot help but ponder these deep and troubling questions. So we willfully stay busy. Now I'm generalizing, but perhaps your life looks something like this. You get up in the morning, maybe you work out to a podcast or some music. Then you hurriedly get the kids ready for school or daycare and you drive off to your job. And uh, on your commute, you use the quiet time of your commute to contemplate the complexities of life. No, you don't. You listen to sports radio or NPR or an audiobook or some more podcasts. Then you go to work and you put in your 8 to 10 hours a day and you drive home and do the same thing. But as you get home, you realize that the kids have soccer practice. And so you go from home uh, out to soccer practice and you engage with the other parents while you're there. And then you come back home. And once you arrive home, you realize that you never made plans for dinner. And so you turn on some music and you hurriedly whip something up and you eat in front of the TV to stay entertained. Finally, the kids go to bed and you're exhausted and you just want to relax, so you hop on the couch and you go on social media or TV or video games, whatever it is you like, and you kill some time. Eventually, you know you should get some sleep, so you turn it off and you go to bed and you get up the next morning and do the same thing every day of the week until the weekend when somehow you find yourself just as busy even though you don't have to go to work and you stay busy. And 40 years passes in the blink of an eye. The kids graduate college, get married, start their own careers, and maybe you crushed it at work. And suddenly you find yourself retired in your 70s, fabulously wealthy, with an abundance of time and the means to keep yourself distracted in all sorts of new and fun ways. But as you get older, it becomes harder and harder to ignore the ticking clock in the back of your mind. When you know that if you can stay healthy, you've got about 15 years yet to live. Still no closer to answering those pesky questions than you were in your 30s. Now, I know that you're super busy and there's a million things you could be doing right now, and I'm grateful that you're here, but I want to focus on these two questions because they are of the utmost importance. Each of us has a choice to make. Will we stay passively distracted? Or will we face these questions head on? This morning, I would love to ask you to use this brief reprieve from the busyness of your own life to open your mind to explore what is both important and unsettling. 
This morning I would like to open God's Word for you and argue that Jesus Christ is the answer to both of those questions, that of your purpose and that of your mortality. So please turn with me to chapter 11 as we read from the Gospel according to John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning eager to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would use me, not in my own wisdom, but in the wisdom of your holy and precious word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you alone are God and we come to hear from you. Please meet us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Here at FBC Medfield, we walk through books of the Bible because uh, we believe that you don't need the thoughts of some guy, uh, but you need the very words of God to encourage you as you go through life. And we believe that God speaks through his word even today. This week, we pick up with chapter 11. If you remember, at the end of chapter 10, uh, those who were in the temple picked up stones to try and take Jesus' life. Why? Because on many occasions, Jesus not only claimed to be a great teacher or a, a, a good moral example for people or even a prophet, uh, Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. Or in other words, he claimed to be God in the flesh. And this made his opponents murderously angry. So, he left Jerusalem, understandably. And he went to a place called Bethany, where John the Baptist had been preaching. This was not the Bethany where Lazarus lived. This was one which was about 90 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And there, the crowds, because of John the Baptist, were more open to his message and were less likely to pick up stones. It was while he was there that he received troubling news from two of his dear friends, Mary and Martha. Lazarus, our brother, the one you love, Jesus, is ill. Ill enough, it seems, to warrant sending word to this miracle worker. Ill enough that he might even 
dying. Speaking of death, do you know what the leading cause of death was here in the U.S. in 2022? Was it COVID? Was it cancer? Political bickering? You'd think. The leading cause of death, according to the CDC, here in the U.S. in 2022, was heart disease. Do you know what the Bible says the leading cause of death is for 100% of individuals? A disease of the heart. The Bible teaches that all mortality is ultimately caused by a disease of the heart. And I bring this up because if we are going to consider the solution to death, we need to know the root cause of our mortality. Jesus is preparing to work another great miracle here, and his signs aren't just random displays of power, but they're there to illustrate for us what Jesus can do to us. Lazarus is not the only one in this story who's sick. Lazarus is not the only one in this story who is close to death. God's Word teaches that each and every one of us is stricken with a heart disease called sin. Now, many consider sin to be when we do things that God disapproves of or when we fail to do the things which God expects us to do. And that much is true. But it is also true to point out that those outward sins are symptoms of a disease called sin which is in every human heart. And we inherited this from our first parents. Every one of us possesses a fallen nature. We are curved in on ourselves, inherently selfish and inherently rebellious against God. We're sinners because we want to be and because we have this disease called sin. And in Romans chapter 5, for which we have a, a slide, Paul gives us the consequence of that. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Later on, he'll write that it is the wages of sin, the wages of sin are death, is death. In our story this morning, we find that the people in, uh, in this story were absolutely devastated by death. They grieved to lose their loved ones. And despite all of our medical and technological advances in our own day, that much hasn't changed. We still hate death. And there's nothing we can do about it. Sin, this disease of sin, has a 100% mortality rate. But you see, our hatred of death does reveal something that God's Word affirms. Did you know this? You were not created to experience death. Death is not design. Death is a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. Death is the penalty for sin. And one day, God only knows when, no matter how much we try to distract ourselves from our mortality, one day every one of you will die. Now, I'm in my 30s. I confess that in the prime of my life, death does not feel very real to me. But there's a wonderful place right here in Medfield where it can start to feel real to you. It's called Vine Lake Cemetery. <laughs> it's a place where 250 years of Medfield families are buried, some stretching back to the American Revolution. It's incredible. Now, if you could hop in a time machine and go back and see some of these families in their prime, day after day, worshiping together, working at their jobs, making food, enjoying their families, 
day after day after day. I'm sure if you asked them, they would say, it feels like this will go on forever. But all you have to do is walk through Vine Lake Cemetery and see generation after generation of headstones to remind you that your days are numbered. Death is shocking, and it comes for us all. So how does Jesus respond to their news? Verse 4, he says, This illness will not end in death. The Son of God will reveal His glory in the way He addresses this difficulty. He has good news regarding sickness and death. Let's find out what that is. In verse 5, we learn two things. First, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. I hope that's an encouragement to you. God is not some impersonal force, but God is a person who loves you personally. He loves sinners. Secondly, we learn that once he heard Lazarus, the one whom he loves, was sick, he stayed right where he was for two days. He didn't immediately go and help his friend. You say, why not? We know from earlier in this gospel, Jesus repeatedly says, I only do the will of my Father. Jesus was in the middle of teaching to a people who were hungry for God's word. Secondly, Jesus was roughly 90 miles away, a four days journey from where Lazarus was. If he had left the moment he received the message, he still would have been two days late to save Lazarus. Third, and this is probably primary, Jesus said this is an opportunity for God to reveal his power and so glorify himself. Jesus was going to leave no doubt that God was going to perform something incredible. And so he continues where he is for two more days. And it's a reminder to us that God's priorities are not always our priorities. Now, we live in a society that is totally self-obsessed. We think the entire universe revolves around us, which is why we get frustrated when God doesn't answer our prayers exactly how we want Him to, when we want Him to. But dear friends, God alone sees the big picture. He alone is God. And you can trust that if His priorities and your priorities are not aligned Your priorities are the ones that are in the wrong. So after two days, he turns to his disciples. He says, saddle up, we're going to Judea. And these men of strong faith, these bastions of holiness say, "Uh, Jesus, I'm not sure if you're aware, but last time we went to Judea, they tried to kill you. And uh, if I remember right, the time before that, they tried to kill you. And the time before that, Yes, that's right, they tried to kill you. Jesus, I'm not one to question you, but what if we didn't go to Judea? And Jesus, as he often does, responded with a cryptic proverb. He says there are 12 hours in the day. If you walk in the day, you won't stumble because you're walking in the light of this world. 
It's only if you go out at night, then you stumble because the light is not in you. You see, in an era before electricity, people only worked in the day because ordinary folks couldn't afford to produce their own light. You worked in the day, you went in at night. Now, Jesus often speaks of his own ministry as the daytime, and he recognizes that the sun will one day set on his ministry as he goes to the cross at the exact time when God the Father had determined. And so as long as he is walking in the light, he knows that he can continue preaching the good news, healing the sick, and even raising the dead, because God the Father is in absolute control. He will not go to the cross until the exact moment that God says so. But his statement in verse 10 is slightly different. He says the one who walks at night stumbles because the light is not in him. You remember back in chapter 8, Jesus called himself the light of the world. And he said the one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Of course, Jesus is saying that if you don't follow him, then you're walking in darkness, spiritual darkness. So sin not only, uh, uh, sorry, sin not only leads us to death, but it keeps us ignorant of God and of his, of his ways. To walk in sin is to continue to stumble through life. And Jesus is clear that we need him to shine the light of his glory upon us if we ever want to get out of this darkness. So Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to Judea. And we're told that he sets his face to, to Judea because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, in our own day, we throw around the word love haphazardly. Love is basically a feeling of attraction. I love donuts, for an example. That is true. For Jesus, however, love is tangible. Love is demonstrable. Love proves itself. If I told you I love my wife, you would expect to find some evidence that this is true. But if I never spend any time with her, if I never care for her, if I never inconvenience myself for the sake of my wife, you'd have good reason to question my claim. But Jesus, as he always does, will demonstrate his love through sacrifice. In this case, he's going to show his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus by risking his own neck to go and care for them. In a similar way, the Bible tells us that God loves the world. And it tells us that God demonstrated his love for the world. You remember that death is the penalty for sin, but God loved the world so much he gave his son. Jesus went to the cross in love voluntarily for sinners. And Jesus didn't only love with words, he loved with the ultimate sacrifice. And on the cross he bore the wrath of God that sinners like me and like you deserve. And he did this because it was the only way to reconcile a fallen world to a holy God. And so Jesus heads to Judea, knowing the immense danger that awaits him there, knowing, by the way, that this will be his final trip to Judea. The miracle he is about to perform will finally harden his opponents and their opposition against them and lead immediately to his crucifixion. And yet, 
and God's infinite wisdom, he will use the death of Christ to demonstrate his love and accomplish redemption. The end result of Christ going to Judea is that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, Jesus, I hear you, but, you know, he's going to wake up. We don't have to go to Judea for that. And Jesus is more explicit. He says, no, you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. And then he says something again shocking. He just drops shocking truth bombs all over the place. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there to save him so that you might believe. Jesus is glad for the opportunity not just to heal a sick person, but to raise a dead person. It might surprise you to learn that Jesus' disciples were not the bastions of faith you might expect to see after three years of being with Jesus. Especially when you see Martha's faith coming up in the next section. They don't even understand who Jesus is. You say, how do I know? Look at Thomas's sarcastic response. He finally gives in. He says, okay, guys, well, let us go with him. We can die with him. Let's go to Judea. And you remember that every single one of these disciples, in just a few weeks, every one of them will stumble in the darkness on the night that Jesus was betrayed and abandon their leader and go into hiding. And Jesus is glad because on this day, he's going to demonstrate that he, as God, has power even over death. So let's keep reading to hear more. Pick up with me in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. There's a scene from The Princess Bride where... Wesley, the protagonist, is taken by his friends to a man called Miracle Max, and it's because they believe that Wesley is dead. However, upon getting to Max's place, he corrects them. Wesley is, in fact, not dead. He's only... (laughs) Great job. He's only mostly dead, which, good news, means he's still slightly alive, which means Miracle Max has something to work with. 
and he proceeds to revive Wesley. Uh, that is not what we find here. <laughs> Jesus knew supernaturally that Lazarus died, and then he leaves, and four days later, he shows up in this little village of Bethany near Jerusalem. In verse 19, you see that enough time has passed for him to be embalmed and placed in a tomb and for a group of mourners to come and visit so that they may grieve with the sisters. If you skip down to verse 39, we won't go there now, but if you read verse 39 in the King James, Martha says to Jesus, don't go in there, for he stinketh. It's a fun word. His body had already begun to decompose. He wasn't just mostly dead. He was very emphatically dead. It's kind of like if you remember Elijah's showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. They do all their dancing trying to get fire to come from heaven, but uh, Elijah actually says, why don't you go ahead and drench my sacrifice three times with water? And, and what's the point of this? The point is when God acts he wants it to be very emphatically clear that it is his power that has accomplished something and not anything else. He wants to remove any chance of someone rationalizing away or casting aspersion on the mighty display of God's glory. And so the stage here is set. There is a very dead man. There are a crowd of witnesses and two grieving sisters. And God in the flesh is walking to them because he loves them. And Martha's the first to come out. And I want you to know that Martha here in John's Gospel is the paradigmatic example of real faith. It's not the twelve. Remember, they all abandoned Jesus. It's this random woman from a small town outside of Jerusalem. She's, of course, a sinner like everyone else, but she is a woman of remarkable faith. And she comes out and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> Do you know you could be that honest with God? Here we see a suffering woman and it kind of seems like she's putting this on Jesus, doesn't it? But listen, read the Psalms. God already knows how you feel. God already knows what you think. You might as well be honest with him. But I also want you to notice the faith that is behind that statement. She calls him Lord, and she recognizes that, yeah, he really could have made a difference. He has the power to heal the sick. So while there's disappointment in her statement, it nevertheless reveals faith in Jesus, which is why she continues, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give to you. Death is wrong. It robs husbands of their wives, children of their mothers, and sisters of their beloved brothers. Many people live their entire lives without a single righteous thought toward God. How does he want me to live? What does he expect of me? And then a shocking death takes place, and all of a sudden, though they've never once paid attention to God, everything is now God's fault. That's not the case with Martha. She's in as much pain as anyone but in her honesty with Jesus, she also confesses faith. Lord, I still know that you're in control. If you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus answered ambiguously. I want you to remember right now that unlike you, Martha doesn't know how this story ends. Martha has no idea what Jesus is about to do. 
So put yourself in her shoes and note the faith that she's showing Christ. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise, and she believes him. She says, yeah, I know he's going to rise on the last day. She's expressing faith in a future resurrection. That one day God will raise my brother from the dead. And she's right on that point, but she still misses Jesus' point. Dear friends, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he did this by conquering death. And so he looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying resurrection is not just something future, but the resurrection and the life are standing before you. Life everlasting is in your midst. Both of these things are bound up in the person of Jesus. And that's mind-boggling how Jesus can say something like that. So let's look at how he unpacks that statement. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? He says this, The one who believes in me, though he die, penalty of sin, yet shall he live. This is the good news of Christianity in a single statement. Jesus promises that those who die trusting in him are those who he will resurrect to life everlasting. But I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the one who works really hard at being good, though he die, yet shall he live. The one who's flawed but basically a good person and tries her best, though she die, yet shall she live. As a pastor, I often get the opportunity to to speak to folks about faith, and this is generally what I hear, that if you are a good person, God will accept you. And there's truth behind that statement. If you live perfectly according to God's will and design, God will accept you. But as the New City Catechism reminds us, we lost that ability at the fall. Because of this sickness of sin, you actually cannot be good enough for God. Maybe in your own eyes, maybe in the eyes of those around you, you can portray yourself as a good person, but not in the eyes of God. And God says the penalty for sin is death, and that's bad news. But here's the good news. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Would you like to be right with God? Would you like Jesus to grant you everlasting life? Jesus emphatically denies that it's something that you can accomplish on your own. It is not something that your good works can do. Salvation is a gift, and you don't earn a gift. You receive it freely. Jesus says it's belief, it's faith in me that alone makes you right with God, not your works. And this means, by the way, that eternal life is available to everyone, from those who are outwardly good to those who are outwardly bad. Anyone who has the humility to recognize, I cannot get to God on my own, but I freely receive the gift of my Savior who died to save me. Anyone who has the humility to turn from sin and in faith embrace the Lord Jesus Christ has eternal life. What a wonderful truth that is. It's not up to me. 
Well, there's more good news. The second part of Jesus' promise. He says that those who are resurrected from the dead are resurrected to eternal life. Here's how Jesus says it. So he said that uh, though you die, yet shall he live. Now he says the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And the Greek is emphatic. It says will never die forever. <laughs> He's saying that if you, though you die, yet shall you live and death is something you will never, ever taste again. The one who conquers death through faith in Christ will live forever. And he turns to Martha, this poor, suffering woman who just lost her brother, who has no idea what Jesus is about to do. And he says to her, Martha, do you believe this? And this morning he asks you, Amid the busyness and complexities of modern life, Jesus comes to you in a moment of quiet and he asks you, do you believe this? I imagine that for many of us here, the answer is yes, I do believe, Lord. Still in a crowd of this size, many of you might be intrigued. Perhaps there's something about this Jesus guy that piques your interest, but you're not sure what to do about it. You'd like to know more. If that's you, let me say I'm thankful you're here. You're in the right place to explore faith without judgment. I also want to tell you about something we're doing on Wednesday nights called Life Explored. Uh, Life Explored is a Christianity discussion group that runs every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. We present an aspect of Christianity and we open the floor for open discussion. You don't have to have any faith background to come. There's no obligation. And the best part is that there is a wonderful, delicious, catered meal, absolutely free, every single week. And I make sure of it because I'm there. <laughs> so I would highly recommend you come. If that's something that interests you, just talk to me and I'll get you signed up. Well, Martha gives the good confession, and it's the best confession of faith in this gospel. Remember, even Jesus' disciples don't understand what she's about to say until after the resurrection but I want you to notice she believes before she sees. Amid her pain, she believes Jesus before he raises her brother. And it's because she believes that she sees. She says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And she demonstrates her faith by trusting Jesus in good times and in hard times. Jesus makes a lot of claims in the Gospel of John. He makes a lot of bold claims. But Jesus also demonstrates that he has the authority to make good on his promises. If you come back next week, we'll see the rest of the story. And I don't, I don't want to spoil the ending for you. Might have already done that. But we'll just say that Jesus proves he can do what he says he can do. And if you follow along to the end of the Gospel, he'll demonstrate that even with his own life. So how does Christianity answer those two questions? Well, to the question of death, he promises life after death. He gave his life to free you from death, and he is the resurrection and the life. Now, perhaps your reaction to this is, of course, you Christians always have your eye on the pie in the sky, which is really fun to say. You're foolishly hoping 
in paradise while ignoring important matters right here, right now. You're so heavenly-minded that you're of little earthly value. If you feel that way, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, But I don't agree. (laughs) As many of you know and tire of hearing, I am a Jacksonville Jaguars football fan. You had to know this was coming. It's one of... (laughs) It's one of the great embarrassments of my life, Dan. Thank you. And every week... I am unable to watch the game until Sunday night when the replay comes out. Now, being a Jaguars fan and being disappointed are kind of like saying the same thing. Even in a year when we're supposed to be Super Bowl contenders, we lose to the Texans by 20 points. Now, I could be a blindly loyal and good fan and just sit down every Sunday night, turn on the replay, and watch it as if it were live. But that's not what I do. Because my team, unlike yours, hasn't been blessed with the best quarterback and coach in history for 20 years. Before I consider watching the game, I actually check the final score. (laughs) Because I want to know, before I ever sit down, if I'm going to waste three hours of my life getting frustrated, watching a talented team squander their potential and snatch defeat from the jaws of victory again. (laughs) But if I see the final score, if I know that we're going to win before we even start to watch, I'm no longer blindly loyal, but I have a confident hope in the outcome and I sit and I watch every frustrating play, every painful gaffe, because despite all of the difficulty of being a Jags fan, I know at least on this week that we will win in the end. And so I also end up saving a lot of time because I only watch two or three games a year. (laughs) This is... I hesitate to say this. This is kind of like what it's like to be a Christian. We're not blindly loyal, but we have a confident hope in the outcome because we know that he will raise us from death because he himself defeated death. And that future hope changes everything in the present. And so it's at least partially answering our second important question regarding purpose. Because only when you recognize that your life is eternally significant in the eyes of God, only when you are confident that no one can snatch you out of his hands, only when you're focused on that which God loves, only when you have the end goal in mind will you have a purposeful and meaningful life. Only when you know that you possess eternal life will you be willing to give away this life for the sake of following Jesus. Because you will be presently focused on that which has eternal value. And there's no more practical difference maker for the present than that. Now, there's much more we could say about purpose and meaning and resurrection. But I know you're hungry, and so am I. So let's close in prayer, 
And just know that this topic is one that we come to every week as we open God's Word. Let's pray.